Support for this episode of This Changes Everything is provided by Primera Blue Cross. There's this piece of history that you probably learned about in school, but hadn't thought of much since then. And it's getting a lot of play right now. With all the talk about the coronavirus, many have been comparing it to the Spanish flu of 1918. Memories of the pandemic of 1918. In uh, 1918, a new respiratory virus. You're back in 1918, when a deadly flu virus was... The single most important lesson of the 1918 influenza was, tell the truth. With us for more tonight, veteran journalist John Murray was the author... Spanish, so-called Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919 killed an enormous number of people. This is Knut Berger, Crosscut's editor-at-large. A longtime journalist and author with deep Seattle roots, he's also the host of Mossbacks Northwest, a TV series on KCTS 9 about regional heritage. He's definitely Crosscut's resident historian. He says that at least 50 million people died of the Spanish flu. And some estimates suggest it was more like 100 million. 675,000 people died from the disease in the U.S. alone, and 25 million Americans caught it. More soldiers died of the Spanish flu in World War I than died on the battlefield. Wow. And in Seattle, between 14 and 1,600 people died. But Knut says that estimate is probably low. Knut grew up in Seattle, and so did his dad. His grandparents immigrated to the U.S. around 1910 or so and settled in Seattle in 1915 with their infant son. So they were here for the Spanish flu. My father um, did a little oral history before he died. This was many years ago. He was about four years old when the pandemic hit. And because of that oral history, there is this short first-person description preserved of his father's experience. People were wearing masks over their faces because of the flu epidemic, and mother nearly died. I remember the doctor coming to see her. She was dry and flushed with fever and breathing badly, and he apparently gave my dad some bad news because my dad put his arm around me, and we sat in the bedroom for a long time. He put me to bed, and I cried. I knew something was going to happen. But she was still there with us in the morning, and the day after that, and the day after that, and so we were glad. I was told later that two days after mother's crisis, the doctor himself collapsed and died, apparently sick with pneumonia while still tending the sick as best he could. If my dad or I got the influenza, it must have been mild. Hmm. When... Uh, Your dad was doing this oral history. Was that the first time that you'd heard about his experience? You know, I remember him mentioning the epidemic in passing. And I remember him telling me about the doctor dying. And it was interesting because my father became a doctor himself. Hmm. Very good bedside manner. He's very good with patients. But I think he was really moved by that. I remember in talking about it with him. I think of the self-sacrifice of that doctor for his mother, for a patient. I think, I think it inspired my father in some ways. Um, I think he really took it to heart and felt maybe in some ways like he had a debt to pay there. Mm. The other thing that strikes me about his memory was um, <laughs> the, 
talking about how his father put his arm around him and then put him to bed. Now, this was a fairly um, lovely but pretty stern Norwegian dad. This this tender moment that that my father experienced with his father putting his arm around him and putting him to bed, that really struck me just because I think it signaled to my father that this was not business as usual, you know, something something really different was going on here. I'm Sarah Bernard, and this is This Changes Everything, a podcast from Crosscut about the new normal. In a crisis, we often turn to history to see if there are any lessons we can pull from that time. And so, of course, lots of people have been invoking that massive global pandemic from a century ago, the 1918 influenza, also known as the Spanish flu. Because it was so huge and so devastating, it did influence the world. And here in Seattle, it had its impacts too. For this episode, I asked Knut Berger to help me understand the 1918 influenza and how it affected Seattle, to see if our past can give us any hints about our future. Over the past month or so, Knut has been digging up a lot of details. And along the way, he stumbled on a very intriguing discovery from the Washington State Archives, one that sheds light on a cultural phenomenon that may have originated around that time. And believe me, it still impacts us to this day. Stay with us. So the influenza of 1918 and 1919, it wasn't actually a Spanish flu by any means, as you've probably heard by now. It's actually only called that because it was the Spanish press who were the first to report on the illness and really publicize it. Spain was not fighting in World War I. They didn't have the censorship restrictions. Um, Suppressing information about the flu was part of the propaganda effort, you know, where people didn't want public morale to be eroded. (laughs) Yeah, so it's kind of... It, it should be a study in a branding seminar or something, right? Like how the people who did the responsible thing in Spain by reporting what was happening end up being tagged with the, exactly. <laughs> the negative brand of the Spanish flu, like it was their fault. And there's no uh, science or theory that I've seen that indicates Spain had anything, it, it was anything other than a victim. I mean, it is worth pointing out this happened at a time when people here were getting really crazy about immigration. Hmm. And so maybe Spanish flu was just sort of a reflection of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, terror of the, of the foreign. And while COVID-19 did in fact originate abroad in China, that sentiment sounds familiar, doesn't it? And do you think using the term Chinese virus, that puts Asian Americans at risk, that people no, might target not at them? All. No, not at all. I think they probably uh, would agree with it 100%. It comes from China. There's nothing not to agree. Okay. And maybe this is partly our human ability to see patterns in all things. But there are some similarities between then and now. The- Daily newspapers, uh, you know, issued these reports that said how many new cases each day, how many people died each day. And we begin tonight with a disturbing milestone in this coronavirus pandemic. The death toll in this country surpassing 20,000. And then reiterating the warnings about social distancing. Those mitigation and social distancing efforts. The wearing of the masks. In light of these studies, the CDC is advising the use of 
non-medical cloth face covering. I've heard that literally hundreds of doctors and nurses died. Concern is also growing for doctors and nurses working tirelessly to help COVID-19 patients and contracting the virus themselves at an alarming rate. There was a lot of quackery also. Tonight, preying on people's fears in the middle of a national crisis. The feds say this L.A. man claimed he cured coronavirus. So the influenza happened toward the end of World War One, And while there isn't a clear consensus on the actual origins of the virus, we do know that it began spreading first among soldiers and military camps. It first showed up in Seattle a little later than in other places, September 1918. What was that experience like for Seattle residents at the time? Well, I think it sort of snuck up on them. It was kind of a boom time here. Another similarity. You know, our period of greatest growth was from the 1880s to about 1910. And from 1910 to 1920, Seattle grew by about 25%. But that was slow growth <laughs> compared to what had happened in the previous uh, decades. Okay, so Seattle was booming, but then this mysterious illness hit. And like now, local officials and doctors were scrambling to contain it. They mandated at one point fairly early on that you couldn't be out in public without wearing a, a medical mask. Uh, you couldn't ride public transit without wearing a medical mask. They knew that crowding was a problem. They, they closed the movie theaters. They closed the soda fountains. They uh, closed the vaudeville shows. They outlawed dances. Uh, they banned charity events, concerts. You know, all the kinds of things that might uh, draw a crowd. And people had trouble adjusting to that. Um, there are accounts in the papers of crowds of people gathering downtown and just kind of wandering the streets with nothing to do. But they, you know, this is the age before TV. This is before home radio. Uh, you know, entertainment and socializing was, was out in public. So they eventually had to crack down. They began giving out tickets. They... Um, they didn't really want to arrest people and <laughs> put them in crowded jail cells. But I mean, it sounds like social distancing, if anything, was was it sounds like that was maybe the most effective thing. Yeah, I think it was. I think that was one of the the, the lessons of it was that it worked. There weren't uh, a lot of treatments. Right. I mean, I, re I read that. Um, uh, in fact, at the time, not every doctor agreed that it was caused by a virus. Yeah, that was really new. I mean, the idea of sort of viral influenza was a late 19th century discovery, in a sense. Which is maybe part of why there are all these imagined treatments for the disease being peddled all over the place. I was looking through the Seattle Times from 1919, and you see all these ads for patent medicines. Uh, I saw a big ad for treating influenza with Vicks VapoRub. People, people were turning to uh, purgatives, uh, you know, clean out your system with a little, you know, vegetable pill and uh, these kinds of things. And in a sense, these cures of various kinds um, were filling a void, which was the professional medical community couldn't stop this thing. And you're seeing this now. The professional medical community is working as hard as it can, but so far it doesn't know how to stop this thing. 
And so there are all kinds of treatments and preventatives being floated out there, including a recommendation by President Trump to try what is basically a synthetic quinine, which is a medication used to treat malaria. In a last-minute news conference Sunday night, President Trump repeated that doctors should use the drug hydroxychloroquine. They should do it. What really do we have to lose? And this recommendation has led to at least one death when an Arizona man and his wife took a version of this drug because they believed it would help prevent COVID-19. An Arizona man in his 60s died after using chloroquine phosphate in an attempt to self-medicate the coronavirus. His wife also attempted self-medicating and is currently under critical care. Um, I found ads in the Seattle papers advertising quinine. Really? Regular old quinine for the influenza. Huh. So... A hundred years later, we're trying to go back to a cure that didn't cure. At the very least, I've learned, quinine didn't do much in 1918. And so far, the president's recommended drug, hydroxychloroquine, has not been approved by the FDA as a treatment for coronavirus. No drug has. So the so-called Spanish flu was, of course, a very different virus, a different illness than COVID-19. And one of the ways it was different was that it was actually more likely to kill people who were young and healthy. And it seemed to attack people who had, you know, you would think have a fair amount of stamina and robust immune systems. My grandmother and grandfather were in their mid-20s when they, you know, they were facing it. Mm. And the thought is, I, I believe that um, the flu had a way of hyperactivating immune system. So if you had a strong immune system, your body tended to kind of overwhelm the, uh, you're fighting off the, the pneumonia or bacterial infection that resulted in your weakened condition from the virus. Um, you read accounts of public health people going in uh, to people's homes and finding entire families sick and family members all incapacitated. And there was a, a reference I've seen in more than one book to, you know, the dead being stacked like cordwood um, because they couldn't process um, death fast enough. So that, an experience like that, it changes things. We'll get back to my conversation with Knute in just a minute. But first, a message from our sponsor, Primera Blue Cross. Primera Blue Cross was founded in Washington State. With offices in the Puget Sound area and Spokane, they know the profound impact the COVID-19 outbreak has had and will continue to have on our local communities. They joined the region's major employers who made the early decision to send employees home and help protect vulnerable family members, friends, and neighbors. The Primera team is in your corner and doing what they can to help during this health crisis. That includes covering COVID-19 tests and related office visits without out-of-pocket costs for most plan members. And they're working with the federal government toward free testing for all, regardless of health coverage. Primera has expanded virtual care options, too, so people in Washington can get their symptoms checked by a doctor without leaving their home or receive ongoing care, like mental health therapy. Primera is offering early prescription refills to make sure members have the medications they need at the ready. Mail order and 90-day refills are also available. Ask your pharmacist if you want to know more about your options. Primera continues to actively monitor the situation to find more ways they can help to stop the spread of COVID-19 and get treatment to those affected. Learn more about how your care is covered at Primera.com. 
Do you have a sense of what might have changed? Um, what kind of impact did it have? The influenza epidemic may have really heightened both professional and public awareness to the need for public health. I mean, I've seen articles that said, you know, Seattle needs bigger hospitals. It needs better emergency facilities. I mean, they certainly knew that what they had wasn't adequate. I also think that the time period was one where um, there was a lot of more activity to kind of create a social safety net for urban living. I noticed, you know, there were there were a lot of charity events that happened to support people who suffered from uh, the flu and its consequences. Um, you have this period of kind of huge growth, but the growth abruptly ends right around 1920. Hmm. And some historians, Roger Sale, who wrote Seattle Past to Present, you know, he he writes a chapter about Seattle kind of from 1920 to 1940, calls it Between the Wars. And it was a period that he thought Seattle really lost its momentum as a dynamic city. Reasons for that are um, economic downturn at the end of the war. Um, You have the, the trauma of the war. And I would argue that the experience in that 1918-1919 and the losses from that in terms of number of people who died, the kind of public um, fear uh, Mm -hmm. and some of the consequences of that all kind of melded into this period that um, where Seattle was really undergoing a major adjustment. The city flatlined really in some ways through the depression and didn't recover economically until World War II and really after World War II. This period after World War I was definitely a time that was hard for the whole country, not just Seattle. Canute calls it the grief hangover. In 1920, you had the influenza still killing thousands of people in some cities. You had the trauma and fear of the World War and of the pandemic. The economy was bad. And there was a lot of racial strife and anti-immigrant sentiment coming up all over the place. And so 1920 is the year that government officials started trying something a little different. One of the interesting things that comes up in 1920 is the first reference I have ever found to something akin to the Seattle freeze. So real quick, the Seattle freeze, in case you're not aware, it's a term people use to describe the stereotypical Seattleite. A little cold, a little standoffish, especially to strangers. It can be hard to make friends in Seattle if you're new here. That's the story anyway. I had wondered, well, is the Seattle freeze, did that come from social isolation or trauma during during the pandemic? I'm not sure that it did, but... Uh, ben Helly, who's an archivist with the State Archives, sent me a clipping, and it's from 1920. The headline is, Seattleites Urge to Thaw. Huh. Make Strangers Feel at Home is the idea of campaign fostered by Chairman of Civic Bureau of the Chamber of Commerce. Huh. For, for one thing, it's it's one of the earliest pieces I've ever seen describing the freeze phenomenon. It basically says Seattleites are not particularly friendly or conversational. 
And so the Chamber of Commerce declared Neighbor Day. Hmm. And this was in, in March of 1920. And Neighbor Day was going to be a day when you were everyone was encouraged to talk to the person next to them on the trolley or the person on the street or the person next door. And it was actually a, a local version of kind of a national proposal that had been made by the Secretary of Interior um, to create a National Neighbor Day to kind of deal with this legacy of the influenza and the war, huh. which was a kind of American society that was divided, it was uh, miserable, um, withdrawing. But the Seattle Neighbor Day has such a specific Seattle spin to it. This isn't just about, oh, you know, bring country values. It's, it's a critique of how Seattle treats, in particular, newcomers. Um, it is being charged, this is uh, from the Seattle Times, it is being charged that old-time Seattle residents are not inclined to converse with the people who share their seats on the streetcars. Strangers in the city maintain that their polite inquiry regarding the probability that will be made, rain tomorrow is usually met with a grunt. <laughs> Thousands will move to Seattle this year. But they want to like Seattle, and it's up to Seattleites to see that they do, say the advocates of this new plan for Neighbor Day. And then it, it gives you a, kind of an imaginary conversation. Um, this is what I call real weather, isn't it, says the newcomer. Maybe, says the Seattleite. <laughs> My wife's sister's cousin got in from Peoria, Illinois yesterday, and she says that down there, they're paying 20 cents for a loaf of bread. Can you beat it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I've only been here six months myself, and believe me, I'm kicking myself that I didn't come here years ago. This is some city, believe me. Have you lived in Seattle very long? 20 years. <laughs> so... We're, we're encouraged to be something less than monosyllabic. One reason I think this shows up is that by 1920, you've got people who have actually lived in Seattle for a long period of time. They're a minority, uh, but you do have longtime residents who you know, have their bungalow and they're dug in and they've seen these kind of overwhelming growth. And, uh, you know, the city has always been welcoming. The business community loves it. More is better. But you have a, a settling sort of middle class that's kind of uh, not so sure. You know? So, you know, I don't think you can peg the Seattle freeze to specifically a traumatic reaction to the pandemic. But I think it's really interesting that these first references to it are in the immediate aftermath trying to solve a problem that's been recognized as a result of the pandemic, war, and economic period. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's fascinating. I didn't even know, for example, about Neighbor Day. I didn't know that that was a thing. And, Nobody and, knows about it. Huh. 
and <laughs> sad. <laughs> it's a nice idea. <laughs> but I, I did find evidence that they tried to do Neighbor Day also in Spokane in 1920. Uh, and I can find no follow-up to it at all. In other words, there were these articles in the newspapers, the Spokane Spokesman Review and in the Seattle Times, talking about um, this great new annual tradition called Neighbor Day. And then it just, no follow-up. It vanishes. It's not happening the next year. Neighbor Day was a flop. Oh, Seattle. So no, no evidence of any particular result from Neighbor Day. Well, I, I do know one thing. It's still a problem 70, 80 years later, <laughs> 100 years later. Yeah. <laughs> we're still talking about the Seattle freeze. So yes, yeah, that's actually a good point. This is the centennial of the <laughs> Seattle freeze. Oh dear. And a civic attempt to resolve it. So 100 years, we should, now that's something we should uh, acknowledge with a plaque. Yeah. So 100 years later, maybe this is a moment to reflect. I mean, I can't imagine that it hasn't crossed at least some Seattleites' minds at this point. Will this period of social distancing impact the culture of a city that has this reputation of already being kind of socially distant? Now that we're literally instructed to avoid other people, including our family members in some cases, but especially strangers, will this make us even more standoffish? Or does absence make the heart grow fonder? Maybe this will kind of open the doors for a resurgence of appreciation of our neighbors, you know, again. But who yeah, knows? Yeah, will the ending social isolation kind of unleash a new Seattle, you know, that realizes that they're really not so happy with being quite so isolated and <laughs> reconnecting with people. So Seattle, on this, the 100th anniversary of Neighbor Day, maybe we can strike up a few more friendly conversations. Six feet apart. Thanks for listening to This Changes Everything. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and the story editor was Mark Baumgarten. Engineering assistance from Rusty Bacall. Our cover art is by Greg Cohen. Thanks so much this week to Knut Berger, whose series of columns about the 1918 influenza in Seattle are full of a whole lot more detail and insight and intrigue than I could include here. I found a story of a policeman who was suspended because he was caught on duty drunk. Oh. And his defense was that he had put whiskey in his coffee because he had to fend off the influenza. Read them all on crosscut.com. And you can check out all of Mosspack's Northwest on crosscut.com or kcts9.org. You can read all of the Crosscut Newsroom's coverage of the coronavirus at crosscut.com slash coronavirus. You can subscribe to This Changes Everything on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. Spotify access is coming soon. And if you like the show, please do leave that review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. For more on This Changes Everything and other Crosscut podcasts, go to crosscut.com slash podcasts. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. This Changes Everything is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.